0: This month on security management highlights. There will be 1.8 million unfilled positions by 2020. The cybersecurity field faces a talent shortage, but organizations are coming up with creative ways to address the problem. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates explains.
1: A lot of this equipment is just almost dysfunctional. U.S.
0: elections infrastructure is aging and vulnerable to cyber attacks, and with the midterm elections pending, states are racing to improve equipment and strengthen processes. News and trends editor. Mark Tarallo is here to tell us more. Plus,
2: So some conflict is inevitable, right? But most is avoidable if we as healthcare professionals know what to do and know what to say.
0: Ryan Weber with Aurora Healthcare explains how conflict prevention techniques can create a safe healthcare environment for patients and providers alike. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. As organizations struggle to recruit and retain cyber talent, some new and innovative ways of finding skilled workers for the sector are emerging. Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Just tell us a little bit more about that shortage. How big is the problem?
3: Yeah, that's a good question, Holly. ISA Squared, with the help of Ernst & Young, regularly puts together the Global Information Workforce Study, and they released their most recent one in February 2017. And they found that the cyber workforce gap is on pace to increase 20% from 2015, which means that there will be 1.8 million unfilled positions by 2020 if we continue on that pace, which is a lot of unfilled jobs. So this is definitely a big issue, especially if you think about organizations are going to continue needing more cyber personnel, more technology based personnel. So we're going to continue to see that there's going to be this gap where they're going to need more people to fill these positions than might be available.
0: And excitingly, for this interview, you got to speak with someone from the FBI, Assistant Section Chief for Cyber Readiness Supervisory Special Agent, John Caliano just tell us a little bit more about what it was like getting in touch with him and uh, what he said the Bureau is doing to address the worker shortage.
3: So at ASIS 2017, um, FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke, and he talked about some new initiatives that the FBI is using to to train their agents to deal with cyber threats and sort of keep them up to pace with, with what they're dealing with in the real world. And so I obviously was very interested in that, so I reached out to the FBI about talking to someone um, from the Bureau more about sort of the training that they've developed and sort of how they work to, to train the employees that they have and then also to, to reach out and recruit people who have skill sets that they need. And surprisingly, the FBI was like, yeah, sure, we'll definitely have someone sit down with you. So luckily I got to talk to Special Agent John Calliano for just about an hour. He was really great talking about the different training initiatives that they have at the FBI because obviously they're continuously training their agents to investigate and deal with new threats that are constantly developing not only in the technology sector but, you know, in crime in general. The FBI is this new training program specifically for cyber to identify existing agents who might have cyber aptitude that are not part of their cyber team already. They identify certain people and they have them take a test and it sort of rates their, are you like a beginner level of cyber? You know, do you have some understanding and knowledge of cyber or are you an expert? You know, and then it based on those findings, it recommends different training routes for, for those agents. So those might include like classroom programs within the fbi itself where they might send those agents out of the FBI to other universities, like or to a place like the Sands Institute, to get the to get the training that they need to better do their job. One thing that Caliano talked about was that obviously the agents and the people working on their cyber teams are, are really good, but they found that people who are, have no cyber background whatsoever, who might come from like a more creative background or like a liberal arts background, are also really good at uh, at identifying and, and show high cyber aptitude was the term that he'd used, of, of being able to think about cyber and technology in different ways, mm-hmm. so which is really beneficial for, for the Bureau. So so they're doing some, some cool stuff there, and then they also have some other initiatives to to recruit people for the FBI, such as through their honors intern program, which is open to college students. So if the FBI is interested in whatever you're studying, you can apply through this program, and they will pay for you to to get your degree, and then you can do research or work for them and then also they have a pay it forward program where they're really reaching out to people at the high school level who might show cyber aptitude in the hopes of developing that pipeline to to sort of address
0: this cyber workforce gap and besides government there are some initiatives in you know the private sector including education to help ready students for the possibility of a career in cybersecurity who did you talk to and what did she say yeah so
3: lots of different companies are obviously struggling with we have multiple positions open. We have no one to fill them. And so I was at an event that happens regularly in D.C. It's called Cyber Tacos. And I met the founder of, of Grimm. It's a cybersecurity engineering and consultant firm. And he was telling me about sort of a program that they have developed. So he introduced me to Lisa Wiswell. Uh, she is a principal consultant at Grimm, but she also used to run the U.S. Department of Defense's bug bounty program, Hack the Pentagon. So when she left the federal government, she went to work for the private sector, Grimm in particular, because they've set up this program um, called HAX, H-A-X, that's really targeted towards creating opportunities for, for college students to sort of develop that cybersecurity talent pipeline. So what they're doing right now is they're working with college students at Penn State University at Altoona, Michigan Technological University, George Mason University and Rochester Institute of Technology, colleges that have really robust cyber clubs that are also, a couple of them are positioned in places where Grimm has an office. And they're running these called cyber challenges where teams of students team up and they complete different challenges and ultimately can win prizes or they can get connected with people at Grim for potential like internships that can then lead to a job in cybersecurity. So it's really beneficial, you know, for the students because they're getting experience, they're making connections with professionals. And then it's beneficial for Grim because it's developing their pipeline, you know, to get new people and, and young people into the cybersecurity workforce.
0: Was there anything else you wanted to add that, you know, you couldn't fit into your column?
3: You know, this is a topic, the cyber workforce gap that I've visited several times while working at for security management you know because it's just a continuing issue that companies they have these challenges they need more personnel to deal with cyber threats and and to do the work and they just don't have them and that was one interesting thing in in the global information workforce study they've surveyed tons of professionals who have identified that they have these needs on their teams and they're just not being met and there are multiple different theories out there that i think are interesting you know obviously there is a shortage right now of maybe the skill set, but also are we not reaching the right people who could fill those jobs? Are our HR requirements too stringent so that people who have cyber talent, cyber aptitude just would never make it through an initial interview for your company. They could be a great fit. They could do the work. They're more than capable, but they may not have a bachelor's degree or other certification that HR is looking for, so they're never even brought in for an interview. Those are some of the things that I think, you know, hopefully going forward, I'll be
0: able to address in in other pieces for the magazine. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Megan, and uh, thanks for sharing how you put together this story. With the 2018 U.S. midterm elections approaching, election officials must deal with aging equipment that's at risk of being hacked. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo is here to talk more about what's being done to address the problem. Hi, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Mark, set the scene for us. Why are so many people looking to the U.S. midterm elections when it comes to the security of the voting system?
1: Yes, as you say, lots of people looking at these elections now. Really two main reasons for this, I think. One is just the pure scope of this year's midterms. You've got, in total, all 435 seats of the U.S. House of Representatives are up for grabs, as well as 33 of the U.S. Senate seats. That's on the federal level. Now, on the state level, 36 governor's elections will be held. So 36 out of the 50 governorships are up. And all but four of the 50 states will hold legislative elections, the lawmakers that serve in those state houses. So you've got an incredible amount of elections being held on November 6, 2018. The second reason, which intersects with The scope is the possibility of Russia hacking or at least in some ways tampering with the election process. That issue came up in a significant way in the 2016 presidential election. That's been investigated and studied for the last year or so and a congressional commission has pretty much concluded that Russia did interfere in the election. They say that 21 states voting systems were targeted and in somehow hacked in some ways, although the, the fact that 21 states were hacked doesn't mean that only 21 attempts were made. What officials say is that pretty much every state, the Russians pretty much tried to hack every state and only succeeded or got through walls or however they were able to do it in 21 states.
0: So representatives, obviously, in Congress are weighing in. What are they saying about the upcoming elections and the
1: integrity of our voting system? As you say, representatives are weighing in, and as I mentioned before, the Congressional Task Force on Election Security, they've already had a few hearings on this subject. Co-chairs of that commission are US Rep Robert Brady, he's a Democrat from Pennsylvania, and US Rep Benny Thompson, who's a Democrat from Mississippi. At a recent hearing of the commission, both Thompson and Brady said, look, let's face it, the last presidential election was hacked by the Russians, and so we need to make sure that the next election, the midterms in 2018, will be safeguarded. Their opinion up to now has been, there's a lot of work still to be done to make sure that it's safeguarded. Because you know, you've got so many elections in every state and on the federal level. So that's a big job.
0: And yes, Mark, you write that U.S. elections face yet another obstacle, aging voting machines that are reaching their end of life, so therefore they cannot be patched or updated and can't stand up to possible tampering or cyber attacks. So what are states doing to counter this problem?
1: That's a big problem. Thomas Hicks, uh, who testified at one of these recent hearings, he's head of the Election Assistance Committee, which basically is designed to help with U.S. election security. The way Hicks put it was that the equipment that was purchased by states, all the voting equipment that was purchased by states 15 years ago has come to the end of its life cycle. So you have the fact of a lot of this equipment is just almost dysfunctional at this point. The second issue that they bring up is that you have older machines that maybe aren't quite at their 15 year end of their life cycle, but they weren't really designed to protect against cyber attacks, against very sophisticated tampering that can be done. As um, the Rhode Island Secretary of State Nelly Gorbea said at one of these hearings, back in the day with the older machines, Security was kind of an afterthought. So they're not really designed for sophisticated attacks, and that's a problem too. So what you do have is you have some states, like Rhode Island, at this commission, the Rhode Island Secretary of State, Nellie Gorbea, she testified and she said that Rhode Island knew that they really needed to upgrade their voting machines. They spent a good 11 million or so in doing this. And they thought it was a very wise investment. The problem is, is that some states are really strapped for cash, and so you know, spending millions on voting machines um, that seems like a noble cause. But when you've got a million other things you need to spend money on, it's it's hard
0: so you didn't just present problems in your columns you talked about potential solutions there's a report from the center for american progress a liberal think tank that you mentioned as well as the defending digital democracy program so what are those two bodies doing to help bolster election security
1: both those organizations came out with interesting reports with a lot of good suggestions on what to do take for example The report, Nine Solutions to Secure America's Elections, that was the one put out by the Center for American Progress, which is a liberal think tank. In that report, besides suggestions uh, that have been talked about a lot, like replace all voting machines, they suggested things like requiring all votes to have a paper record of the vote cast. So that would be really good for accountability. They also recommend conducting robust post-election audits to confirm outcomes, updating and securing voter registration systems. Besides the voting machines themselves, the voter reg systems can often be outdated. And even things like performing mandatory pre-election testing on voting machines, setting up a system of a continuous vulnerability analysis, and in the end, providing more federal funding for updating the nation's voting infrastructure. And then you had uh, the report put out by Defending Digital Democracy Program. That program's run by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the Harvard Kennedy School. That program's kind of interesting in that it includes leadership from campaigns from both the Republican and Democratic parties. So people who've been kind of in the trenches on the political side. They recommend things like technology upgrades, like say the use of cloud services of two-factor authentication for voters, not just one-factor authentication, using stronger passwords for any voter-related online activity. So they come up on the technology side, some innovative solutions to try to help secure U.S. elections in that regard.
0: Well, the clock is ticking. Those midterm elections are upon us uh, before we know it, so we'll see if any of these solutions are actually helping.
1: Uh, You're exactly right. Nine months away, so fingers crossed. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Holly.
0: Finally, the healthcare profession is one of the most violent private sector workplace settings, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. But healthcare professionals can foster an environment of safety and security by practicing a few conflict management techniques. Ryan Weber, who works in loss prevention security at Aurora Healthcare, joins us to talk more about this. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So, set the scene for us, just like you do at the beginning of the article. What are some of the statistics that kind of back up what the current state of security is in U.S. hospitals, and why does that matter to patients when picking their healthcare facility?
2: You know, safety is a, a huge priority in all healthcare organizations. You know, statistics show that patients choose those facilities with reputations for safety, even if they have subpar care, right? So, when we talk about violence in the healthcare industry, most people think about caregivers being physically assaulted by violent patients. And, you know, the reality is most violence experienced by our caregivers is emotional violence. And emotional violence is the verbal abuse, the threatening behaviors, those low level forms of disrespect that over a period of time can cause caregivers to become indifferent or even afraid to interact with patients. So, you know, when our caregivers don't know what to do or what to say, they begin to develop emotional barriers that can give the appearance of an unsafe environment which directly impacts patient satisfaction and patient outcomes.
0: Given that fact, what are just some of the basic ways that caregivers can foster and promote this environment of safety and security for their patients? What are some of the more subtle things that you wouldn't even necessarily think about that could make a big difference?
2: When you talk about fostering and promoting an environment of care, the the key here is really to be able to identify inappropriate behaviors early, before they escalate. And once we've identified those behaviors, they have to be acknowledged as inappropriate. They have to be interrupted and and redirected to the issue at hand. A mentor of mine, Joel Lashley, coined the phrase, inconsistency is the enemy of peace. And this rings especially true in the healthcare environment. So when we address these behaviors consistently, we're able to create what we call a social contract with a shared understanding of what's expected in that healthcare environment. You know, it it reminds me of a story, uh, another local healthcare facility here in the Metro Milwaukee area, they've been teaching material similar to this for a number of years and it's gotten to the point in their facility where other visitors other patients recognize behaviors as inappropriate and they begin to set limits before the staff there even become involved so you know when when we're able, uh, able to identify those behaviors that resonates with not only the staff but with other people who come into that facility
0: definitely so you break it down a little bit in more detail in the story, talking about both conflict and crisis. What do each of those look like? Someone might hear those two terms and think that they're similar, but what are the differences and how can they be effective in establishing a secure healthcare environment?
2: Yeah, you know, when when we talk about conflict and crisis, they're they're really two different mindsets. So some conflict is inevitable, right? But most is avoidable if we as healthcare professionals know what to do and know what to say. When we have pre-planned and practiced responses, that we're able to consistently create better outcomes. So when it comes to conflict, it's important for us to remember that it starts with acknowledging the other individual's perspective. When we do this, we can begin to employ empathy as a tool to generate what we call voluntary compliance, cooperation, and collaboration. When we use empathy, we can get to the root of the issue and redirect that conflict with professional language back to the issue at hand, and it helps us achieve the best possible outcome for that situation. And, you know, when we, when we look at crisis, it's important for us to first understand what a crisis is. And many people don't really know the answer to that. And a great quote from a Milwaukee County Sheriff's deputy is, it was a crisis in their minds. So while it may seem trivial to us, the event that this individual experiences may seem like the end of the world to them. When we encounter individuals in crisis, they, they're usually not thinking rationally. Here we need to employ the five strategies that I talk about in the article, so that we can begin to recover this individual to their pre crisis state with everyone's safety in mind.
0: Right, absolutely. And say that those two de escalation methods don't work and the situation progresses to an even more, you know, possibly dangerous or potentially violent situation. You call that combat. What can the healthcare professional do in that situation?
2: You know, when we talk about combat, what we're really saying here is that our words alone have failed. And if an interaction escalates to that physical nature, a caregiver needs to be thinking about their safety. Options, you know, at this point include disengaging, calling for help, maybe escaping to a, a safe place, or possibly using physical control techniques to stabilize that individual. We can also employ some of those strategies that we talk about in crisis management, such as adapted communication, um, a concept like one voice, or even reverse yelling to, uh, to assist us in establishing a baseline for communication.
0: So in closing, is there any other advice that you would offer these healthcare professionals to create a positive environment of care?
2: When we talk about techniques and tactics, nothing works 100% of the time. But that doesn't mean we stop trying. It's important for us to remember to keep communication open, to set clear social contracts with all interactions, be empathetic, and most importantly, treat all individuals with dignity and respect, regardless of their background or your background.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan.
2: Well, thank you again for having me. It was a a pleasure talking with you.
0: That does it for the February edition of Security Management Highlights. Check out this month's bonus podcast from the ASIS International Security Applied Sciences Council. And be on the lookout for more material throughout the month. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. As always, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.